Welcome to Algie's Investment Podcast. This episode is all about compound interest. And my guest today is Terry Smith. His investment strategy has been incredibly successful. Launching his fund in 2010, he's generated a return of over 530%. That's an annualized return of 16% per annum. And today, you're going to find out how he manages the money with his team, and you can decide whether his strategy is a winning one for the future. Terry, thank you very much for joining us. My pleasure. In simple terms, what is your philosophy and strategy to running the the funds with equity fund? It all comes down to a thing called compound interest. Uh, That's what we are all sort of seeking in the way with our investments is for them to compound in value over time. Uh, It's said, alleged, that Albert Einstein said, compound interest is the eighth wonder of the world. And how do you do that? Well, one of the least talked about characteristics of, of equities, stocks, stock market and investment is it's the only asset class which can compound. Others can't do it. Bonds can't do it. If you own bonds, even if everything goes well, they just pay you interest. And then when they get to their maturity, they pay you back. They don't reinvest any of your cash flow from the bonds. Property is the same. If we own this building that we're here in today, uh, presumably we get paid rent. And uh, at the end of the lease, we could either renew the lease or sell the building. But none of the money we receive would be reinvested in property for us. Whereas in equities, some, around about half approximately, of companies' profits are retained and reinvested in the business. And if they do that tolerably well, it compounds in value. And in particular, and this comes back to my strategy uh, that you're asking about, if they do it really well, then they can grow your value of your investment far faster than you can grow it by finding new investments in the stock market. If the average company that you're investing in has a 30% return on capital, and ours do, and if they retain about half their earnings and invest it again at 30%, then presumably they'll compound at about, take a rule of thumb, 15% per annum, which strangely enough is round about what we've compounded at. And that's it. And. Could you explain to our listeners what the return on capital employed, how it's calculated? Yes. Um, It's just the return the company makes in any reporting period is profit, basically. I mean, you can use other measures, cash flow or the profit, divided by the amount of capital that it's employing on your behalf as a shareholder. So the amount of equity from shareholders and the amount of debt from banks and bonds and so on uh, that it's got there. And you divide one by the other, multiply by 100, and you've got a percentage on your hands. Again, it's one of the things that I think is most overlooked in investment. That um, If you're thinking of investing in anything else, um, a bond, uh, my fund, you want to know, what do you think the return will be? Why don't we ask that with companies? We should. Hmm. And then how many, how, many, how many holdings, how many companies do you need to own in a portfolio yeah. for, for the strategy to, to have some sort of robustness to it? <sighs> Around about 20 or so. Is that all? That's all, yeah. Um, I mean, people talk about diversification investment. You'll read something about diversification and investment every day of the week if you sit there and read enough of the stuff that comes through. Uh, and, of course, Markowitz got a Nobel Prize in economics for talking about the benefits of diversification. But people rarely study what he actually said and its limits. He didn't say that diversification has a, a, a infinite and linear contribution to investment once you get beyond a certain number of holdings, you've achieved all the diversification benefit you're ever likely to achieve. And it's only in the 20s, basically. 
your strategy, therefore, is is one of patience, isn't it? And yes. and therefore, yes. your turnover, it must be quite low. It is, yeah. Historically, how low has it been? Um, I've never, I've, I'm calculated an average, but five percent, something of, the, okay, of that, so, or, something of that order. Yeah, so so know. really pretty low. Yeah, very low. Yeah. Which means that it's probably possible to get a calculation, a rough calculation. Of our next question was how how old are is the average company that you own? Um, just over a hundred years, I think. Hundred, I think currently hundred and hundred and six years, I think. Wow. So yeah. we're talking about companies that have been around for a very long time. Yeah, yeah, they've seen the Great Depression on average. On average, they've seen the Great Depression, um, the Second World War, um, and events since. I mean, people, as you know, I mean, regularly in the and the press and commentariat are always telling us that something that's about to happen is going to be the end of the world as we know it, roughly speaking. It's inflation, the war in the Ukraine, um, the debt ceiling in the United States, uh, the coronavirus pandemic. It's all never been seen before. It's all about to wipe us out completely. You know, we've seen uh, – history doesn't repeat itself, but it rhymes. <laughs> <laughs> and these companies – on average, have seen it all before and survived. And one of the companies I like, which is an absolute poster child for this, which I've got in the portfolio, is Unilever. And Unilever survived World War II, even though, of course, it's a company uh, which until very recently had joint headquarters and joint listing, and its continental headquarters was overrun by the Germans and occupied. It survived. There must be some sectors which you just will never invest in, and other sectors... Are you sure we've got long enough for this? Well, I hope so. It depends, it depends how long the answer is. Which, which, which sectors won't you touch, will you not touch with a barge pole? Um, and which I'm, ones are you always inclined to be attracted okay, towards? Yeah. We won't invest in uh, banks, insurance companies, or real estate businesses. Uh, we won't invest in companies involved in uh, minerals, mining, exploration, oil, gas, et cetera, et cetera. We won't invest in utilities. Uh, we won't invest in um, uh, airlines and logistics businesses. There's, there's a few examples for there's you. There's quite a few. There's quite a few. And I, I, I mean, in fact, the vast majority of the market. I'll give you a qualification at the end. Um, and anything that's involved in bulk um, uh, sort of manufacturing, so big chemical companies, engineering companies, steel companies, none of those. None of those at all. Almost all our investments are centered around three sectors, basically, which is. Consumer, healthcare, and technology. Those are the big three, basically. Why is it that of all the ponds you could fish in, that two-thirds of your fund is invested in companies that are quoted in the US, on the US stock market? Why is the US such an attractive place to invest? Well, it's the biggest market in the world to start with. You know, it's still the big, America's still the biggest economy in the world. And so a lot of companies of a sort that we uh, desire um, started there in a base there and have grown outside that powerful domestic market to conquer the rest of the world. Think Coca-Cola, right? The most recognized phrase on the planet after OK, which, by the way, was a, a, a slogan in a US presidential election. OK. Um, and so they've got this powerful domestic franchise um, combined with the deepest and widest capital market in the world in which they're quoted. But bear in mind, some of the companies that we're invested in, which are listed in America, don't operate in America at all. It doesn't, it's not the same as exposure to the US economy, but it is still the greatest repository uh, of, uh, of companies of a sort that we seek. One of our uh, uh, colleagues um, uh, in the office uh, on one occasion when uh, 
people, I'm sure they did it in Europe, when everything is going wrong and people are sort of going, oh, what could you invest in? He would always carry on with his work uh, and just say, US equities. <laughs> <laughs> and on average, he's right. He's right. On average, and, he's right. Um, I don't believe there's any fund for, for, for all seasons. It, all the best funds I've ever come across have periods of, of, of severe underperformance when they're out of fashion. Yep. If you were trying to give a sporting analogy to, to your strategy, Mm-hmm. What what could you use to describe how how your strategy works? We kind of believe in the Charlie Mungerism, uh, which is once he was asked about how he and Warren had pulled this off, and he said, "We're not as clever as you think. We just didn't do stupid stuff." And so that's our first task: is let's not do stupid stuff. Let's not invest in airlines just because. Oh no, it's all different now. Or uh, let's not invest in highly leveraged businesses or the latest bio- biotech uh, uh, startups. On. So that's the big thing is just don't do stupid stuff. We don't have to own the 20 best companies in the world to succeed. But owning bad ones is a really bad idea when you've only got 20. Number one, don't do stupid stuff. Don't own bad things. Secondly, from time to time, just go, Microsoft at $25 a share. Yes, we're going to have it as much as we can get. And I don't know what we're sitting at today, 350 or 360 or some number like that. It's like once in a while, we just come out and we make an attacking move in terms of something like that, which adds to the returns. Very simple. Yep. Very simple indeed. So low turnover is a byproduct of your strategy. I've always, I've always been, been aware of that. What's the longest you've ever owned a company for, to, to give our listeners a, a, a feel for well, it? Well, the fund is, is coming up for 14 years old uh, uh, at the end of this year, and we've got a number of companies that we've owned for the whole of the period. Um, you know, PepsiCo, Unilever, and so on. You know, we've got a a handful or two of companies that we've never sold. Um, and, and have you got any seller's remorse of anything that you yeah. did sell? Oh, yes. Oh, God, yeah. Are you kidding? Yes. Best example? Best example of, of seller's remorse. Well, what's the best example of seller's remorse? Um, uh, probably Procter & Gamble, which I just bought back recently. Yes, I saw that. Um, we sold it because we thought it was a company that was addicted to price increases as a way of, uh, of, of growing revenue. And just after we did so, and Nelson Peltz went on the board, and um, I don't know what he said to them or did to them, but they somehow seemed to have worked out that you need to sell more of stuff as well. And good. <laughs> so I bought it back. I mean, I think you know, the simplest thing to do when you've got something wrong like that is, um, well, Change correct it. Change your mind. Yeah. <laughs> um, let's move on to account, accounts analysis of accounts, because I suspect the younger generation spend less time analysing accounts than, than you have over the last... 30, 40 years. How important is the analysis of accounts t- to your team today? It is absolutely fundamental. Right? It's, um, you, and I really do mean the accounts, not the management PowerPoint presentation. I mean the actual original reporting accounts or, uh, or 10K that's filed. Um, why? Well, you know, the funny thing is, I mean, I manage two public companies. When you put up that slide presentation, you quite often edit it to put your best foot forward. I know that seems odd, but that's kind of what you do. It's and human it has, nature. And it has all these things. I think it is human nature. And you have all these things called adjustments. You know, adjusted numbers look really good. And so go back to the original council. And it is absolutely fundamental. Let's start looking at a company and saying, what's the return on capital employed? What's the cash conversion? What are the gross margins and the operating margins? What's the revenue growth? How does that look compared with history, compared with other people in the same industry? Um, I mean, I don't think you should think that numbers are the only thing because I think once you've alighted upon something that you think works, you need to know why it works. Yes, of course. But then there are various statements in the accounts 
Which is the most telling statement? Um, I, I touched upon it already, I think, um, adjustments. I touched upon it in relation to management's presentation, right? An awful lot of people now put out, quotes adjusted numbers. And I know you're going to find this difficult to believe that the thing that they take out to adjust the numbers is usually the bad bits. And so, you know, you look at these numbers and it has a little asterisk. And down at the bottom in much smaller print, it says, you know, removing, you know, amortization of goodwill, uh, restructuring costs, litigation costs, et cetera, et cetera. The more adjustments there are, the worse that they're, they're conducting themselves. You know, one of the people that we really liked as a investor in one of the companies we invested in over the years is, is L'Oreal and Jean-Paul Legon, who was the CEO. And I particularly remember um, they were struggling with, I think it was Brazil uh, and uh, as, a, as a, a, quite a big market. And he was asked in the Q&A session by one of the analysts, what would the numbers be like if you took Brazil or Latin America out? And he said, well, obviously it would look better, but what would be the point of that? <laughs> I love it. Yes. If you take the bad stuff out, it always looks better. Look for the number of adjustments. It's almost like this. Count the number of pages of adjustments versus the number of pages on the statutory accounts. That's a great line. I love that. Thank you for that little tip. Let's delve a little bit deeper into fun characteristics whilst we can. We've talked about profitability. We've talked about... or. We touched on low levels of debt, and we you definitely touched on a company's ability to grow their earnings. A term which you often use, which is less well known to some investors, is free cash flow yield. Yeah. What is a free cash flow yield, and how do you how do you measure it? Mm. As as in when is it when is it too low, and when is it attractive? Yeah. Okay. So. Um, Free cash flow, what is it, first of all? Okay. Free cash flow is the cash that a company generates and what it's got left over after paying for everything. All of its expensive, all of its capital investments, that's its free cash flow. It could do whatever it wants with that. It could pay it all out to investors. It could uh, invest it in the business. Uh, Sir Pete, the late Sir Peter Burt from Bank of Scotland, I once said, Look, I think we'll put it in a room and look at it. <laughs> <laughs> or they could buy their own shares back, couldn't they? Uh, yeah, you could buy your own shares back. So, it's, it's, it belongs to the shareholders and the company can dispose of it in any or any combination of those ways that they want. We try to value companies by taking that free cash flow and dividing it by the market value of the company to get a yield that we can, can then compare with the yield on bonds, bank accounts, et cetera, et cetera. And what we're looking for in a company is one where a combination of that free cash flow yield, so if the free cash flow yield divided by the, uh, the market value comes out at three or 4%, we go, okay, that's fine. We then compare it with a couple of other things to see where we're going. One of them we compare them with is government bonds. What's the yield on government bonds? Because after all, government bonds are a safe investment. Apparently. Uh, well, allegedly. Um, and um, if we can buy very high quality companies on a free cash flow yield that is the same as or more than the yield on government bonds, We'll probably be all right in the long term. And the reason I say that is pretty simple. The coupon on the government bond doesn't grow over time, whereas our, our free cash flow from our companies will grow over time unless we've got something seriously wrong. <laughs> and so that's kind of the bottom line. Is the free cash flow yield the same as or more than the government bond? Because if it is, we're, providing we can take the time to sit here and wait, we're probably going to be okay. That's quite an important qualification. The other thing we do is, in terms of trying to work out what our total return might be, is we have a guess 
at the growth rate in that free cash flow over time? What will it grow at over time? And my team are quite good at trying to sort of guesstimate that over about a four or five year time horizon. Why four or five years? Just it's a period we found by experiment that they're quite good over getting it at. Um, partly because they're very good at it. Um, they are. Partly because these are quite predictable businesses. And so we take that growth rate over the next four or five years and we add it to the free cash flow yield. One of the rule of thumbs in investment is if you take the yield on something and you add the growth rate, you get the estimated return if nothing else changes, which of course is rubbish because something always changes, but it doesn't matter. So if you take uh, you know, the earnings yield on a company, which is the inverse of its PE, and you add the growth rate, you should get to the, the return. So if we've got 3 or 4% um, free cash flow yield and we think we're growing at about 8%, then I think my expected return on that portfolio is about 12% per annum. Just add the two together. It's a rule of thumb. So over a 10-year period for a patient investor, that's, that's a very handsome return, isn't it? Sure is. I mean, uh, over the very long term, 50 years, the S&P 500 has compounded at about 9%. So if we can beat that by 2 or 3%, that's pretty good, I think. Um, now, we hope to do better than that, but the means of doing better than that are, are one of several things. One of them is from time to time, I don't know why, the market goes completely mad and offers us an opportunity to buy something very cheaply. Um, we bought Microsoft on a 12% free cash flow yield. That shouldn't exist. It's so bizarrely cheap that Julian and I had to sort of lie down in a dark room with a towel on our head and think, what have we missed? And the answer was nothing at all. <laughs> but it doesn't, occasionally those come along and they, they give you that opportunity. Or another example for you, IDEX that we own, which is the veterinary diagnostic equipment company, ran into two things at once. One is it changed from wholesale distributors to going direct to vets, which disrupted its sales, its cash flows. And the Sequoia Fund, which is its biggest shareholder, had a meltdown because of its um, uh, investment in Valiant Pharmaceutical and had big redemptions, had to sell its holding. So we got this opportunity to buy it very cheaply. It went up 100% per annum for the next few years. But you don't get very many of those. Markets are not that inefficient. So I would say that sort of 12% number that I've just named you is very good compared to the long run, but we hope that opportunity will arise and we'll grasp it to better that. So 12 percent compounded over over ten years. That's that's, a, that's almost doubling your money over yeah. Yeah. over yeah. six years. Isn't it is. It? Yeah, people people get this wrong because six years will double your money yeah. at twelve percent. Six twelves are seventy two. Yeah, it doubles your money over six years. The rule of seventy two. The rule of seventy two. Yes, it's a an arithmetic rule for working out. Uh, compound interest, basically. Uh, yeah, one of the simplest questions is, if you make 10% per annum, how long does it take to double your money? And of course, un with simple interest, where the interest isn't added to the principal each year and it earns interest, with simple interest, the answer is 10% per annum, 10 years. But of course, with compound interest, it's not. Because at the end of, of year one, you'll have 110. And 10% on 110 gets you to 121, right? And so on and so forth. A quick way to do it is to divide the rate of interest that you're going to achieve into the number 72, and that will tell you how long it takes to double your money. So if it is 10% per annum, you will double your money in just over seven years. If it's 6% per annum, since six, six goes into 72 12 times, 6% per annum, you would, oh, sorry, 12% per annum, divide into 72, you will double your money in six years, basically. So actually the opposite of that is that if inflation was at 7.2%, you'd halve your money over 10 years. Yes, you would. Yes. Oh, that's terrifying. That might well be the future. It could be, yes. Yeah. Let's move on to the balance sheet just for a second. Yeah, sure. Um, because uh, we have assets and liabilities. We have fixed assets. I've and heard we, that. Uh, <laughs> and we have um, 
we have tangible and we have non-tangible assets. Mm. Your portfolio is very skewed towards non-tangible assets. Yes. Which are harder to value than tangible assets. Yes. Why do you own, why are you so skewed towards non-tangible assets? And what is it that's so unique about them? Yeah. Tangible assets are things like this building that we're in or a plant or a shop or a vehicle or some equipment and so on. Um, and it's literally something you can touch. Physical. It's tangible. And um, it's got some interesting characteristics. Uh, one of them is they're relatively easy to replicate with money. Just go out there. And not only that, you can usually borrow the money to replicate it. So if you want to build another shopping centre or buy another fleet of vehicles or build some uh, factory equipment, Usually your bank will look at its tangible value and feel comforted by that, rather stupidly in my view, but it doesn't matter. I mean, I was in banking myself. I was, it's uh, What they should really call it is pawnbroking. Then we'd all understand it a lot better. Like, oh, well, I've got a valuation that says it's worth that. I'll lend you that against it. So you can borrow quite a lot of money to finance your investment in those assets, which makes them easy to replicate. And not only that, the very fact that you can borrow money drives the expected return down towards the cost of debt. Because if... There's an investment in a property that's available on the market. And if we can all borrow lots of money against it, in bidding for the property, we'll accept a lower return the more debt we can put in there. Yeah. Once you get to intangibles, though, they're pretty difficult to replicate, right? Um, Because you need real equity for a start. You can't easily do it with debt. You go along to your bank and say, I've got this idea for a software program. I'd like to borrow a lot of money. And it's a very short meeting, basically. (laughs) Very short meeting. Secondly, you know, they, um, they do give you advantages which are difficult to get around. Brand names, brands are, are an intangible, which are difficult to get around. You know, we, we are creatures of habit and uh, we typically gravitate towards buying brands and we pay a bit more for brands than we do for unbranded goods and we pay a bit more for leading brands than we do for secular or tertiary brands. Um, and it's also usually a combination of factors, brands, control of distribution. That's an intangible advantage, you know. You and I sit here and instead of having this uh, interview, which is obviously wonderful and fascinating, we devise a new vodka and, uh, and we've and then got to try and get it to market, haven't we? How? Because the distribution is controlled by our competitors, right? Uh, it's very difficult, very difficult. Know-how, um, install bases of equipment. If we're in the business of installing lifts or veterinary testing equipment or mass spectrometry equipment for analysing drugs and food, we've got to tame market to sell things into people that – yeah, it's a physical asset, but it's got an intangible value in terms of having a client base which is pretty tame and secure and locked into it over time. The other thing is properly maintained intangibles can last forever. In terms of valuing companies, one of the commonest uh, mistakes that's not discussed much is time. Um, so one of my trick questions for people is always, we buy an asset, I don't know what it is, a cement mixer, right, and we pay 100 and the return every year is 20. Is that a good or a bad investment? Well, over, over, over time, it turns into a very good investment. How long does it last is the question you've got to ask. Because if it lasts four years, it's a really lousy investment. <laughs> if it lasts 20 years, it's a really it's good really investment. Good. <laughs> and same with, in, with assets. And one of the things about intangibles is they have a very long life. So if you've got an, a business with an intangible making very high returns, it might go on forever. Right? So, you know, we look, at, we look at intangibles out there like brands and say, how long has it been in existence? Well, for more than 100 years, you know. Colgate was paying a dividend when Queen Victoria was on the throne, paying a dividend. Hmm? 
Have you ever invested in an unprofitable business? Yes. What was it? Um, well, I've invested in Amazon, which is an unprofitable business. Well, of course, yes. It has a very profitable element to it, though. It does, it's very profitable, but it is overall an unprofitable business. Yes. Um, and it's, it's, in your, it's in your portfolio today, isn't it? No, it's not. I've sold it. You've sold it? I've sold it, yes. Oh. I've sold it. Um, it was a mistake, in my view. How long did you own it for? Oh, uh, yeah. Hmm. A year and a half, maybe. But you now own Apple. Yes, I do. And, and what was it that caught the selector's eye on Apple over the last, I don't know when you bought it in the last 12 months, but maybe the last six months? Um, yeah, last, about the last 12 months. I, um, I was very affected by my experience in the dot-com uh, where I had been called to uh, Boston to give a presentation to a fund there called Oxley, actually. And uh, they had me and Michael Mobison, who was then working at Credit Suisse First Boston. They were very confused about the dot-com, the internet, and so on. So they got each of us to do an hour. He did a presentation uh, on his thing called Frontiers of Finance, and he said, traditional metrics don't work. It's all about eyeballs and clicks, and uh, and it's like Columbus in the New World. It's all a buy, roughly. I, I hope I haven't done him down with that comment. And then I got on and said, it's all about free cash, free cash flow and return on investment, and it's all rubbish. And so they were more confused at the end of the presentation as they were at the beginning, bless them. So they said, well, let's take a particular stock. Let's talk about it. And so they went to Nokia, the Finnish um, uh, leading uh, manufacturer then of handsets, and said, what do you think? So it got to me, and I said, it was trading at about 60 marks a share, I think, at that point, uh, fin marks a share. And I said... Um, well, uh, my, uh, what I love about quantitative methods is they say things which are outrageous that human beings normally show up and say. I said, well, I've looked at the cash flows and returns, and I've valued it on our, our, our format at 12. And I was shocked. And they said, well, how do you do that? And I said, well, because um, it's got this return, but it's actually a consumer electronics business, and consumer electronics businesses will, will revolve in the end, will – We'll migrate to the average for the sector. So I've looked at the sector, the average for LG and Schuster and Sony and, and so on. And, of course, there was an explosion. They said, you've got this wrong. You've got this wrong. Um, it's an ecosystem. It's not, it's not, it's an ecosystem, which, of course, was absolute rubbish. And, in fact, I was too bullish and it went to three. <laughs> <laughs> that scarred me a bit. And mm. I've got to say, when people talked about Apple and they talked about an ecosystem, it sounded to me like history rhyming. Like, but latterly, I've decided they're right. It's got 800 million people signed up one way or another. Over 20% of its revenues are from services now, and they're growing at twice the rate of the handset business, and they've got 78% gross margins. So I became convinced that there really is actually something. I don't still don't like the word ecosystem, network effect, call it what you like. There's, there's a service business in there that I had not um, uh, believed uh, was real. And look, I've started buying it about 125 a share and it's run away from me at the moment I'm afraid but but then I think it will probably come back so I think this is going to be a good uh, year to buy it because the handset sales are down and at the moment uh, the share price is not coming down to match them because Tim Cook's a great presenter but I think we'll get there <laughs> but they're sticky customers aren't they yeah yes, that is the key, that is the key thing yeah. so would it be fair to say that you're more worried about losing money than making money yes yeah it comes back to the Charlie Munger quote that I said earlier just don't do stupid stuff yes and so, if there are any, are there any known behavioural biases that you think you've got in your team that you have mm. to you have to work around? Yeah, I mean, we've got to be very careful with people having ideas. <laughs> They're very dangerous. No, I mean, people people hate this. I say, no, no, we we had the idea. 
I had the idea, you know, about three decades ago on how to do this. And then I researched it with various people that I met. Then I implemented it with the Tullet Prebom Pension Fund. And now I've implemented it at Fundsmith. You know, the things that go wrong are the people who come up who've got ideas. Julian always tells a story. Uh, Julian's a head of research of uh, a hedge fund that we knew in, the, in, the, in California very well and got very well. And Julian was in a meeting with the, the portfolio manager. And one of his colleagues sort of interrupted, came to the door and sort of um, um, whispered to him. And then there was an exchange and he went out. And Julian said, I don't think you enjoy it. There's something wrong there, isn't there, in that exchange? He said, yeah. He keeps telling me to buy this insurance company and, uh, 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 and he's wrong. And Julian said, oh, right. Well, um, what have you done? He said, I bought some just to show him. It's like, <laughs> if you end up doing that, there's a problem, isn't there? <laughs> yeah, there's a, there's a <laughs> real problem. You've got a problem. So that's the biggest one is the the desire for new ideas, right? And it's partly driven by people thinking that they've got to make their contribution, not through doing the day job, assiduously working through the numbers in the accounts, making sure the database is there uh, and so on, but thinking, oh, well, if I come up with this new idea and it sort of uh, it blows the door off, the boss will be terribly pleased. <laughs> um, and you know, that's, I think, the biggest uh, bias amongst people. And I think most of the people that we've got have learned that that's not the way forward, that that's not how we want to accomplish progress. Shareholder activism. Yeah. I've seen you have been involved in, in the past with, with Unilever. Um, is, it, is, it worth, is, it, is it worth doing or, or do you feel that there's, there's just a moral obligation? It's mostly not worth doing. Um, I mean, most activists that we encounter have got a playbook, which we don't like anyway, which is turn up, buy staking company, um, go and shout at them very publicly, get them to uh, buy back stock, pay a special dividend, split the operation into sell shares, go away. And then we're sitting there with a divided company or a more leveraged company and, and they're gone. And it doesn't particularly help. So on the, on the average, I would say most, act, most activists we've encountered, we're not big fans of. And not absolutely all of them, but mostly. When we try and judge everyone on his merits, we, we engage them and say, okay, what's the idea? Um, what is it you're planning to do? The, the guy we liked a lot was the guy who ran ADP, Carlos Rodriguez, who had um, – um, Bill Ackman on his back as an activist. And he went on CNBC and, and said that he thought Ackman uh, was wrong. And um, the, the CNBC presenter said to him, you seem to be implying that maybe Mr. Ackman doesn't fully understand you because he said, no, I'm saying outright. He has no idea. He doesn't understand it at all. And he was absolutely right. <laughs> we loved him. We thought, that's a great thing to say. He's <laughs> absolutely straight out like that. I mean, our own our, our own engagement with people is very disappointing. We are big shareholders in quite a lot of the companies. We are very long-term shareholders. We'd like to be shareholders forever. Um, and we find we're pretty universally ignored. It's very disappointing. And I think when people play their sort of, oh, we love long-term shareholders, no, they don't actually. They just respond to who shouts at the most. What advice have you got to any aspiring investor? Is there any golden nugget you can pass on today? Spend a lot of time studying and learning, right, before you before you get into this, basically. There's nothing harmful in the meantime is sticking your, your money into a passive fund or something and let it just tick along in there and you'll get the average return whilst you wait to see what it is you want to do. I would say if you walked into my study where I live and you looked at my bookshelf and you said, oh, let's have a look at this. So he's got a section of history books there because I did a history degree. He's got a section of books on sort of sporting endeavours, boxing, rugby, et cetera, et cetera. He's got a sort of section of other stuff, you know, miscellaneous novels, anything. And then 25% of it is on the investment, you know. And, and if you can think of a major investment book that's not in there, I'd be surprised. And I've read them all. And I've, I sometimes make notes about them. Sometimes I go back and read them again. So 
If you're thinking of being an investor and you haven't read all of the letters of, of Berkshire Hathaway starting in 1965 right up to the present day, stop. If you haven't read Hagstrom, The Warren Buffett Way and The Snowball and all the other books about it, if you haven't read John Train and all these other people about this, stop. If you haven't read some of the books that are about the animal spirits of markets, not how Warren Buffett does it or how Terry Smith does it or some of the else like that. If you haven't read Connie Brook, The Predator's Ball, about the junk bond boom. If you haven't read Liar's Poker by Michael Lewis about Salomon Brothers. Uh, if you haven't read uh, the, um, the Big Short uh, about the, the run-up to the credit crisis and so on. Because it tells you the reality of how the world operates. I always give our, um, our new trainees who come into Fothersmith a reading list. And the reading list comprises a mixture of things like that. I want them to understand that the entire world out there isn't as pure as a driven snow, right? And I, do all, read all of that, study all of that, then think about investing your own money. And so is that the hardest skill to pass on, that the world isn't as pure as driven no, just snow? patience. Patience is the thing. You know? Patience is patience, the hardest. Patience, patience. Yeah. Because, you know, the, the old saying is, it's not timing the market. Nobody can time the market. And Carl Icahn last week admitted he'd lost $9 billion trying to time the market. Nobody can time the market. I don't know. There isn't a human being that I've encountered in 40-something years in work who can time the market, me included. Uh, and so you can't. it's time in the market, this compound interest thing that I started. That's what will drive your returns in the end. But you need to have patience, right? I would say it's a matter of years. Let me give you another example, if I may. One of our investors who show obviously remain nameless is a very successful e-commerce entrepreneur. And he says he gets approached pretty regularly by young people who say, look, you've made it in this. I've got this idea for doing this. And what do you think? And he goes, well, it's tremendous. They go, yeah, what I'm going to do is I'm going to set it up and I'm going to do you know, a couple of sites or stores or whatever. And then uh, I'm going to flip it in 18 months, to two years. And he says, oh, oh. It took me 20 years to become profitable. <laughs> That's what we're talking That's about. This is a long process, yeah. right? And the average person who's sitting here listening to this or thinking about this who might be in their, uh, let's say, 20s, you've got 50 or 60 years of this ahead of you. There's not a rush. It's great advice. Terry, thank you very much. All content on the Algies Investment Podcast is for your general information and use only and is not intended to address your particular requirements. In particular, the content does not constitute any form of advice, recommendation, representation, endorsement or arrangement and is not intended to be relied upon by users in making or refraining from making any specific investment or other decisions. Guests and presenters may have positions in any of the investments discussed.